Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then use it as an excuse to argue about shit. I'm Brian LaTenry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today we are talking about Holy Diver by Dio. And holy shit. Ta-da. What an album. <laughs> Let me well, tell you right now. Well, and, what a, and what a classic, more to the point. I mean, I admitted last week that I, I had never actually listened to this album all the way through uh, before now, but that's you know please don't take that to mean to any sort of disparagement to dio the man or certainly to holy diver the song which is one of my all-time favorite rock songs unbelievable but i just never listened to the album go figure well i cannot wait to dive into it because honestly this for me is a desert island album um, oh really for a lot of different reasons and uh and I'll get into why, but man, what a freaking album. And and what's funny about this album to me is I think that um, fans of Dio certainly understand what this album is. But I think a lot of times when you look at his overall career, sometimes it gets lost in the shuffle. I feel like a lot of times um, the last in line gets a lot of uh, attention. I'm not saying that Holy, Holy Diver is not regarded as a classic, but I think when people think of Holy Diver, they often think of the song and not right, the album rather than the and, album. Yeah. And that is uh, doing this album an injustice because there is some, I think there's at least four of the best songs he's ever had on this album. And uh, I think it's, I think it's the best thing he's ever done, including his stuff with black Sabbath, but oh, we'll, well, I don't, we'll get into that. Yeah. I was going to uh, say, that's a whole different discussion that we've got to have. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, uh, and we, we definitely have to have the black Sabbath discussion at some yeah, point. You, because... you can't talk about Dio and not talk about Sabbath. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but before we get into this week's album, the first bit of follow-up that I just want to get in while we're still there. talking about Dio is, um, in my notes and sort of on my file system on my computer and stuff like that, uh, I, abbreviate this show to tio as do i so this week has all been t-o-d-o you got that right (laughs) in all my notes which just amuses the nerd in me (laughs) oh absolutely and i and i had a chuckle about that when i first when we first started recording the show because i also abbreviate abbreviated as t-o yeah. Which immediately makes me think of Dio. <laughs> and of course, the logo for this show is the- Is the uh, horns. Is yeah. the horns, which are often attributed to Dio as the sort of- um, Well, he popularized First one to them. make that popular. Yeah. yeah. Didn't invent them, but he definitely popularized them within metal, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah. So before we get into this week's show, of course, we have some feedback. But even before that, I saw a concert on, as we record this, it was this past Saturday. And it was Saxon- and Armored Saint at the Stafford Palace Theater in Stafford, Connecticut, which is probably the smallest venue that I've ever seen some major bands in. Like I, I like small venues, and I go. There's two around here: the the um, Webster Theater in Hartford, Connecticut, and the Worcester Palladium in Worcester, Massachusetts. Both small venues, um, but this venue is a maximum capacity of 400. Wow, that is small. Wow. Well, and when you walk into it, it it will remind you of your elementary school auditorium. Like, because <laughs> I was going to say, like, define small because you know you're you have to remember I'm in the UK, and quite often with Americans, especially you know, people say, "Oh, it's just like I get to get this with comic stores all the time." People say, "Oh yeah, my local comic store is tiny. It's it's just this small little store and you know tucked away in a strip mall." And I'll go in there, and it's like the size of the biggest store we have in my sure. county. You know, absolutely. <laughs> but no, four hundred is a genuinely small venue. Yeah. And there was probably about 200 to 250 people 
at this show. And I had gotten a ticket. Well, actually, our friend Matt Herring bought me a ticket for my birthday. Oh, bless him. But this was a show that I had circled on my calendar because I had never seen Armored Saint live. I had seen uh, the John Bush-fronted Anthrax on at least three separate occasions. And uh, one of those times with Dio, which we'll talk about when we get to the end of this show. But I had never seen him with Armored Saint. And I've been a fan of Armored Saint since before Bush joined Anthrax. Mm, yeah, you mentioned that before. Um, well, in the Anthrax episode, in fact, yeah. Right. On Headbangers Ball, uh, th- that was right around the time that Symbol of Salvation came out and Reign of Fire was their big hit at the time that was off of that album. And that's what sort of got me interested in them. So I had that album back when I was in high school and uh, was excited when he joined Anthrax because of that. So I really wanted to see them. So glad that I did. They were fantastic. They ended up playing songs from all of their different albums, but they played three off of the brand new one, which is fantastic. It's called Win Hands Down. And the opening song is what they opened with at this show, which is the title track. And it's got a great build with pick slides and, you know, just sort of uh, uh, the drum roll building and stuff like that. And then they just burst into it and it's uh, it's awesome. You can see a write-up of it on my blog and they, they did a great job. And the sound there was a couple glitches with the sound, uh, especially with the uh, one of the guitar players and stuff like that, but they powered through it. They were super professional. They brought a ton of energy, and they had a really, really good set. So by the time they were done playing, and the opening band was a band called Mind Maze, which was really good too. It was a brother-sister duo that were sort of a power metal, almost like symphonic uh, type of metal. Never oh, heard cool. of them before. Bought their CD while I was there, and uh, am going to give that a listen and then Armored Saint came on, and they were awesome. So that if that night would have ended at that point, I would have been totally fine, totally worth the $30 ticket that it was. It could have ended there, and you would have been happy, yeah. Would have walked out with a big smile on my face, got to see Armored Saint. They were fantastic. They sound like they haven't missed a beat, and they've, they've been around for 30 years, but they don't tour a lot. And so um, getting to see them is actually a treat because they don't. Uh, John Bush has done. Well, and they're from for, California, aren't they? So they, they are. You know, other side it, of the country. And John Bush and his wife have like a voice talent agency or something like that. And he's done voiceovers for Burger King and other national campaigns over here in the States. That and cracks so me up. <laughs> uh, he actually was the voice of the Burger King commercials when the Simpsons movie was out. So whatever tie in they did with the Simpsons, uh, that's his voice on the, wow. on the thing like that. But uh and so they haven't done a lot. You know, their last album was two thousand ten and then they released one in two thousand fifteen. And so awesome night. But then Saxon comes out. Now Saxon have you ever seen Saxon live? Never. Ah, okay. And I wasn't even big into Saxon. So I knew that they were big in terms of the new wave of British heavy metal. I knew that they were a legendary and well-respected band, but they never were they were never like one of my bands growing up. So I didn't know to be honest, that's not that surprising because even over here and they are as, you know, as most people will know, they're a British band. They're from uh, the Midlands. Same as Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, the, you know, uh, that Wolfsbane, they're from that area, uh-huh. the area I grew up in. Um, and But even in, even in Britain, they were never a huge band. They were a band that if you were a metal or heavy rock fan, you'd probably heard of and you might have a record or two. But the mainstream, as it were, most people had a vague, like, Saxon, oh, maybe I've heard of them. You know, they were never a big breakout band. And when you told me that you were going to go and see them, I said to you, I didn't even realize that they were still around. 
I didn't realize they were still playing. <laughs> Not only are they still around, and mind you, Biff Byford, who is the lead singer of Saxon, is 64 years old. This dude comes out on stage, and they played for two hours. First of all, they only were supposed to play for about an hour and a half, and they played <laughs> well beyond that, including an encore. He was one of the best frontmen that I've ever seen. A 64-year-old guy jumping around stage, not looking 64 at all, in complete control of the crowd from the second that he walks out onto the stage, having fun, realizing that he's playing for a crowd of 250 people when they have played in front of crowds of 25,000 people or more on many an occasion over mm. the years. Yeah. So here they are in this little tiny place, and they come out and he made a comment about this is what we call in the business an intimate show. And uh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he was, but what was great about him is it was none of that like put your hands in the air crap, you know, that cheesy yeah, yeah. uh sort of rock lead singer stuff that you sometimes see that feels forced or or non-genuine. He genuinely just talked to the crowd the whole night in between songs about two songs in he told the light guy stop turning the lights off in between songs because I want to see the crowd. I want to be able to see the people. Ah, right, right. And so every song, he'd be having a conversation. They played hit after hit after hit. I didn't realize that I knew as many of their hits as I did. <laughs> but you know, motorcycle. Don't you love man, it when that happens. Yeah, heavy metal thunder, denim and leather. Um, they played the title track off of their new album, which comes out next month, called Battering Ram, and it sounds freaking awesome. And they were heavy. And I was talking to Matt because Matt is much more familiar with them than I am. And he said they don't sound this heavy on their records. Like they sounded, they're a band that just sounds heavier live. Uh, and right. boy, did they absolutely tear it up! And I was, I was blown away. Like I went from having a passing familiarity with them to being a legit fan of that band by the time that we were done. And to me, that's why I go to live shows, you know. And uh, and that was definitely a band who completely won me over. And I can't say enough about Biff Byford, sixty-four years old, and that guy. Not at any point during the evening did he look like he was wearing down right. you know he he looked at the crowd about an hour and 45 minutes in and said we've been playing for about an hour and 45 minutes maybe you guys want to get on home now and everybody's of course like no 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 and so you know <laughs> they stay around and they play a few more songs but just consummate professionals again with them and armored saint and mind maze like playing in a small venue playing to a, a non-capacity house and even on this tour they're playing much bigger venues than you know they played on this night you wouldn't know it because they came out like they were playing in front of a stadium crowd and just absolutely destroyed. So I can't say enough about all of those bands, but Saxon really, they really impressed me. Like Random random story you, that you just reminded me of, actually. I saw this, uh, people who lived through the 90s will remember this, I saw Stabbing Westward. Oh, I remember uh, Stabbing Westward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember when they were trendy for like six mm -hmm. months? Yeah. Um, I saw them live in Birmingham in England. Uh, and this was when they were riding high. This was right at the peak of their short sort of, you know, brief but bright period of fame. And they had been playing to 5,000 capacity venues in the States. You know, they had been, uh, like, because they were sort of riding on such a wave. Sure. They were playing to big crowds. Um, <laughs> and they came to this little pub in Mosley. I can't even remember... The name of the pub now, but it, it's it's well known. It was well known anyway as a sort of a circuit, you know, of like small venues on the rock circuit in England. Um, and I mean, I'm not joking. It was maybe like a, a 130 capacity 
room. Uh-huh. And it was full. Everybody was there to see them because we'd all seen them on Headbangers Ball and stuff. And we were like, really? Um, but, you know, none of us knew what to expect. They were fucking great. They were See, absolutely awesome. brilliant. I mean, on record, I can kind of take or leave them, but live, that show, they were absolutely outstanding. And they played, as you, this is what reminded me when you were just talking about Saxon, they played as if it was a 5,000 capacity venue. Yep. I don't mean in terms of being grandiose. I just mean in terms of the energy and enthusiasm that they put into it. It was incredible. They, they came out and you could see, they kind of looked around and went, pfft. Okay, right, here we go. <laughs> you know, yep. such a... And I, I mean, not just a small capacity venue, but a small venue. Like, right. the, the stage area was basically, like, maybe 15 by 15 feet. Yep. You know, and all their equipment and the band are crammed into this space. Um, but they just didn't give a shit. They were like, well, okay, whatever, let's play. And they, you know, by crikey, they played. That was brilliant. And, and you totally have to respect that because you, you would hope that up-and-coming bands would understand that they're going to have to pay their dues yes, in yes. situations like that. When a band like Saxon comes out right. <laughs> in a venue like that and takes that approach, like to me that just says so much about the band. And, and if you want to see sort of, sort of what a band is made of, when you see these shows, like when I went to the Mayhem Festival and you show up and the main stage opens at 6 o'clock and there's 300 people in the crowd because nobody's filed in yet. And I remember this time around it was Devil Wears Prada that was the band that came out um, and there was nobody there yet. You know, we had gone over to our seats early. And again, they put in the work, man. They played like yeah. that place was full. And that, to me, says a lot about a band. And to, that's where I've become fans of a lot of bands. When I see like how they work in small venues and on the road and opening up for other people and stuff like that, or on tours where they're they're sort of out of their element. That's what blew me away about Sister Sin when they're on you know stage with all of these um, you know death metal and and you know, uh, grind core bands yeah, and grind stuff. Yeah, core yeah. bands, And they're just so different than that. And so that kind of but stuff. We said that last but... week when we were talking about sister sin, didn't we? Yep. That was one of the things we liked about them was that clearly you can tell that this band means it. They are, you know, they are in this, this is not a pose. This is not uh, sort of, you know, a route to get rich quick or anything. They exactly. mean it. This is their life. Yep. And it's also really cool to see bands that have played together for a long time and are comfortable playing with one another. And that was the vibe that you got from Armored Saint and the vibe that you got from Saxon. They knew what they were doing. They've done this before. They're comfortable with each other. They can improvise a little bit, and everybody's out there sort of having a good time. And that's not always the case with veteran bands, because a lot of times they don't like each other. Right. <laughs> they're doing <laughs> what they're doing. But I think in, in these smaller venues, you sort of get a more intimate look at, at the dynamics and stuff like that. And it was cool to see... You know, yeah. Joey Vera, who plays for Armored Saint and is sort of the heart and soul of Armored Saint, um, has played in Anthrax, and he's a producer of many other bands and has done a lot of different things. And so uh, I was just as excited to see him, you know, and Gonzo, the drummer, uh, the Sandoval brothers that are in the band, Gonzo uh, comes out, he was using the drum kit of the opening band because they didn't even have wow. all the equipment to bring out on the road. So he comes out, and it's not a drum tech, it is the drummer of Armored Saint, who is switching out the cymbals on the drum set to get ready to play. And he plays on someone else's kit for the show. You'd never know it. I mean, he just came out and they rocked. And, and to me, it just had this whole like garage band mentality, you know, yeah. where the guys basically are in a van and they show up and play a gig on whatever instruments are there and just, uh, and just sort of power through it. It was great. Right. So, what, what amps have you got? That'll do. 
Yeah. Well, and actually they said, it's funny you mentioned that, they said thanks to Saxon for letting us use all their equipment and basically all the amps and everything. They were all Saxon. Oh, so stuff. the back so, line was all Saxon. Yep. Wow. So it was all, everybody just plugged in and went and that's the way that it went. And and it was uh, it was sort of like a, um, like a masterclass in efficiency. There was nothing right, on right. that stage and there was nothing brought with them that didn't absolutely need to be there. But it's it's also camaraderie, and this yes. you know we've talked about the, about this before about how metal is tribal, and you know the sort of the recognition between metal fans, and you get that with the ones that aren't arseholes. You get that with bands as well. Even uh, on a tiny level, I remember I played a gig, oh years and years ago at the I think it was the Rock Cafe in Birmingham, mm-hmm. um, and we were the second band on I think of three. Um, and the the headline band, who all had <laughs> their equipment, was way better, way more expensive, sure. and they were all much more technically competent musicians than any of the rest of us, you know. Uh, uh, but their guitarist, like he, um, his guitar just stopped playing. You know, something I don't know, a pickup, like something went wrong, and suddenly yep. his guitar just was not playing. And I think I, there was only a couple of people, a couple of us, who noticed, and he was sort of frantically signalling to anybody. And of course, there were no texts there or anything. This was a tiny little gig for like 50 exactly. people, you know. Yep. Uh, but I saw it and I ran to the back, grabbed our guitarist's guitar and ran up to the stage and handed it to him. And they were in the middle of a song, by the way. This was not in between songs. Right. This was while they were in the middle of a song and just handed him the guitar. I'm like, for fuck's sake, just give the man a guitar. It's not. Absolutely. You know, I could have been, ha, 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 you know, you fucked yep. up. And no, you're not going to do that. Why would you do that? Right. And that's the kind of stuff you only experience at a live show, and you're yeah. more likely to experience at a smaller show. And so if you have, you know, if listeners out there have a smaller venue that they can get to, and a band even that you're, even if you're not familiar with any of the bands, you know, go out and check out some of these live shows because it's it's just a different experience. And there's definitely bands like Saxon now, at the age that all those guys are, and who knows how much longer they're going to be out there touring and doing their thing, although it seemed like they could do it for another 10 or 15 years, that's right, a band you, that I can now you cross off know. my list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I, and I went to see um, John Cale, you know, ex mm-hmm. the uh, Velvet Underground and stuff, yep. um, in Brighton a couple of years ago. Uh, at the Bright during he was on during the Brighton Arts Festival, and uh, to be perfectly honest, it wasn't that great a gig. But I just like I'd never seen John Cale live before, and I'm like, he's not getting any younger. Exactly. Know? Yep. Absolutely, and that, and that's that's one of those things I think as we get older too, we realize that. You know, this doesn't go on for infinity. You know, you're, these bands aren't going right. to just be around yeah. every six months until you decide to go see them. Like yeah. we now have to take advantage of. If someone comes around, you got to get out there and see them. And 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 one of the things that I love about doing this show with you is that I am also even more in that mindset now. Of right. hey, if a good show comes <laughs> around, I need to get out there and I need to see it. Um, so I'm excited about that stuff. So yeah, so yeah. very fun time. So listen to us to being old dudes again. On, I know, uh, right? On the and, show. and this, I'll tell you what, though, it's inspiring to see Biff Byford up on stage at sixty hey, years bet, old. Like yeah. that. I took that with me away from that <laughs> night, and I was like, hey, "This guy." But hey, talking about old dudes, one of the things I wanted to talk about before we get into uh, Dio was your friend John liked the Defiled. Yes. Well, Holy let me, so crap. let me read you what he said because he commented on our Patreon page. Listeners, if you if this is the first time you're listening to the show, go back and listen to some of the others. Uh, Brian's friend John has come up in almost every show. 
<laughs> yep. And we did not expect that he would like this. Album. No, if you, I, if I was a betting man, I would have bet money against this. And uh, because he, he, one of the things that John and I share together uh, is a passion for '80s metal, including hair metal. Like we are, we are firmly the '80s. Will never, no one can ever just tell us that the '80s is not the greatest era of metal ever. And so, uh, and for him, even more so. Like he doesn't listen to a ton of bands outside of that era, and that is his go-to. And uh, so, yeah, when we played The Defiled, I was not, that was not an album that I was expecting for him to even really like, much less love. And so here's what he had to say. He said on our Patreon page, this is a great album. Uh, In Your Face Metal, I thank you, Anthony, for bringing this to my attention. He said, uh, things I like, number one, drums, outstanding work. Number two, from what I hear, influenced by Linkin Park, he said, who I love, which I didn't even realize he loved Linkin Park. Which is also amazing. (laughs) He said, but five times heavier, of course. He said, Hybrid Theory and Meteora are two of the best albums ever created. Uh, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but they are much better albums than most metal fans will admit. I agree with that. Uh, He said, number three, these guys are tight. Uh, number four, at times very melodic lead vocals and backing vocals. Melody is key and Defiled really comes through, which I thought, for him, certainly coming from him, is a ringing endorsement of that um, because that's what he comes to music for, for the most right, part. Right. And he said, uh, number five, albums funded by fans and the band makes it known about their appreciation. I respect that. And that's also really cool. He said, uh, the cons, which you guys talked about a little bit. He said, at times the guitars are extremely muddy uh, sounding. I understand why, but some parts are hard to distinguish exactly what's going on. I think as I listen to the album more, this will remedy itself. He said, keyboards. Yeah, well, hang on. And that's, we talked about that. That actually isn't on the Patreon, but that was on Twitter. And Uh uh, John, (laughs) bless him, said like, yes, sometimes when they're tuning down, it seems as low as D or something. It gets really muddy. And I was like, bless you, John. They're not, they're D is about as high as they get. Right. <laughs> you know, not as low. <laughs> These guys are tuning down to B or A in some cases. <laughs> right. And he and John plays mainly classical guitar now. So he right. is a very accomplished electric guitar player, but has in later years only played really a lot of uh a lot of acoustic and a lot of classical kind of stuff. So that's why he was saying, I need to get back into playing electric yeah. guitar. I, I, I just, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, please don't take my laughter as, you know, sort of mocking. It's more kind of like, Oh, bless you. Bless you. For oh, thinking. absolutely. <laughs> because again, that's what we grew up with. Right. So that's what, how right, we think yeah. of, uh, of how metal is. So, uh, and he said keyboards, he thought the keyboards were a little bit out of place. Um, actually I liked the keyboards. Yeah. On, I, I, on that album. I mean, just, just musically from a musical perspective, I disagree with that. I think they're a really important. Well, we talked about this on the show. I think they're a really important part of the sound, but I was amused that he thought he couldn't understand why the keyboardist was so sort of prominent and in your face in all the videos. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's because he writes most of the songs. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, also on the Defiled, our, our uh, frequent listener, Don, Car- Don Cardenas, had said, uh, the Defiled sound like Corn's Untouchables and Seven Dust had an angry love child. Uh, and he said, I must say, As I Drown has quickly ingrained itself on my metal playlist. That main riff is Aces. It really is, yeah. So he was excited about that. And then uh, our other feedback came from Frozen Summers, who s- had a great suggestion that we put the homework for the next episode on the show notes for the current episodes which we have um, indeed which started is now doing. Yeah. yep uh and and i also promised that i would tweet reminders to people the day before or a couple days before things go up for the next episode so i've started doing that as well oh yes you did that this week didn't you yeah yep and then he said the first listen to now and forever by sister sin he said reminds me of huntress but with a slightly european leaning 
And he also said that he had picked up uh, their new album as well, because I said, yeah, they're all great. And he said, yeah, uh, this podcast is getting expensive. <laughs> yeah, he's not the first person to say that. <laughs> so uh, while we apologize for draining people's wallets, we are not going to apologize for exposing them to music that they uh, that they didn't know that they liked, which is awesome. And yeah, one of the reasons I, we do the show. I, I make no apologies whatsoever. <laughs> Absolutely. So now we can turn our attention to the band of the hour. To Mr. Ronnie James Dio. May he rest in peace. Absolutely. Passed away in 2010 uh, from stomach cancer and was a huge loss in the metal world, uh, mainly because he was still rocking. He was still playing, still recording. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you look at the career that this guy had, and we talked about Biff Byford being, you know, 64 years old. Here's a little fact about the album Holy Diver. When this album released on May 25th of 1980, Three, I believe. Yep. Uh, Dio was forty-one years old. I know, isn't that amazing? Forty-one years old when this album came out. So I'm forty-one years old right now. Oh, really? This guy. Right. <laughs> by the time that this album had come out, he had already been in several bands, including Elf and Rainbow and Black Sabbath. By yep. the time that he came to, like, formed Elf and Rainbow. Yep. And then came to. Uh, and then went through his first uh, of three real stints with uh, the guys from Black Sabbath, one under the name Heaven and Hell, but two, you know, legit um, stints with the band. Well, is it ever really legit? Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is the great issue, isn't it? Is, you know, for those who don't know, Dio was hired by uh, Tony Iommi to replace Ozzy after they yes. fired Ozzy Osbourne from Black Sabbath uh, in the 70s. And you know therein lies the great dilemma and i will i will admit uh my own sort of you know, foolishness if you like that i for many years w- just dismissed dio uh because he wasn't aussie you know uh-huh. because he replaced aussie and i as i've mentioned before i grew up listening to you know original version black sabbath to those first three albums or whatever uh, yep. four albums um you know i love original black sabbath I I love Ozzy. I know he's technically a terrible vocalist and all that, but I just, you know, I can't help it. I love that band. And so when Dio replaced him, there was a real, I mean, bearing in mind, I was very young, but nevertheless, you know, when I, I just couldn't bring myself to listen to this imposter uh-huh. <laughs> who was now singing with black sabbath and like i say i mean i i mad up of course that was stupid and foolish and i was very young but that is so tied up in my kind of feelings around dio and you know my sort of history with his music um th- and i'm sure it is for for many fans one way or the other whether you know you love or hate uh his stints with black sabbath it is such a huge part of him as a musician that I think everybody has an opinion on it. Right. And so for me, um, and this is probably blasphemy to some, I was never a huge Black Sabbath fan, but I liked their Dio stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Dio was the, Dio, the, the, the Black Sabbath Dio albums are the most interesting ones to me. And um, I was a much bigger Dio fan than I was an Ozzy fan. Um, although uh, we will definitely, I'm sure, get to uh, one of the many Ozzy albums at some point in time, and I'm sure Black Sabbath as well. But for me, the first video that I ever saw of 
Dio was the last in line. And I think it was, it might've been on Friday night videos that I saw that, but the weirdness of the lyrics, the weirdness of the visual um, world that he was trying to paint in that video. And it's, you go back now and watch it. I mean, it's a pretty cheesy video as is Holy Diver, but oh yes, <laughs> I was a Dungeons and Dragons kid growing up. Oh, same so here. when you have this guy who is the size of an elf, who <laughs> is dressed like a wizard and is spouting these lyrics about these other worlds and magic and dragons and demons and everything. Like, this guy was everything I ever wanted from music and metal and lyrics, like, wrapped in one. And so he immediately had an impact on me of, like, holy crap. But I came to them through Last in Line. So I didn't, I wasn't even... Which was a later album. Exactly. It was their next album. And so I had already missed Holy Diver. And of course, later heard the song and knew that I liked that. But my fandom of Dio sort of came wholly di- uh, uh, last in line forward. Hmm, so this is an album that I ended up spending more time with later on. And when I dug into it, I, I, I mean, I, I'll say this. It wasn't until this episode and leading up to this over the past few weeks, I've been on a Dio kick. But spending more time with this album is what really solidified it for me as one of my Desert Island albums oh, right. and had a completely different appreciation uh for Vinny Apice, who is the drummer of this band because he is he's good isn't one he? of the yeah. most he's one of the most amazing <laughs> drummers i've ever heard in my life yeah, and and uh this on this album it's just absolutely unbelievable but dio i think the musicianship on the whole album is quite extraordinary considering i mean again for people who don't know Vinny Apice was uh at the time had been playing with black sabbath and he and dio left Black Sabbath together yes. um, to to form the band Dio. And isn't that a weird, I mean, really, you know, that is no disparagement to drummers, but that's a weird thing to do, to uh-huh. quit the band with the drummer of all people and form a new band, you know? That's just strange. Um, and then the other guys, they, I mean, it was only a four-piece band. Dio was only a four-piece band. And Correct. such excellent musicianship on the whole album, regardless of, you know, whether you may like the the actual musical you know result or not the musicianship is exceptional from all of them including Dio right and it, and it was uh, it was Dio and uh, Jimmy Bain who uh, had a lot of the writing on this album although Apice also did uh, some writing on this album too and Vivian Campbell came to it when most of the basic songs were pretty much done but when you hear his soloing and stuff like that I mean he's all over this album yeah. but. But they had that sort of structure there. But Vivian Campbell at the time um, was this young guitar player that no one had really heard of yet. He was—he certainly wasn't a superstar at that time. I think most people, when they hear Vivian Campbell nowadays, um, you know, are watching him slowly waste away in Def Leppard um, as <laughs> you know, basically a, a, a piece of furniture because they don't even really play rock music anymore. But but at the time, and when you listen to him on this album, like. He's a freaking wonderkind. Like oh, yeah. he is, yeah, yeah. he is unbelievable on this album. Not and not just for his soloing and not just for his speed, but as we get into the different songs, like the 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 level of groove that he adds to some tunes and just how they kind of puts a little extra on some stuff. Like he was playing to me, to my ear, at a much more mature level than his age suggested at that point in time. Like he was playing to a level that these guys who were much older than him 
were playing to, I think. And I don't know if that's if that's just his amazing talent at the time or if being in a band with these other guys sort of elevated, you know, where where he was at. But you're talking about, as you said, extraordinary musicianship and I think it's one of those cases where they all elevated each other. There was yes. and you know, I I've read now in, you know, sort of in prep for the show now, looked into it a bit more and read things where Dio said that it all just kind of felt perfect. You know, it was one of those albums. You, you know, you, it, as a musician, you might get one of these in a lifetime. Yep. If you, if you're lucky, uh, where everything just works, everything comes together, everything clicks, everybody plays, everybody's into it, and it's just it's magical. And you know, and the end result is is a great album. Um, and you, I think you can, you know, hearing this album, you can tell that they are just they're clicking. You know, oh. again, regardless of your sort of taste on the album, you listen to it and you're like. This a bit like it's a bit like the first uh, Rage Against the Machine album, right? Which I'm not a huge fan of, but you know I listen to it and I'm like, this is a band that are absolutely on fire. Like every single part of this band is working at peak, you know, optimum capacity and, yes. wor- and working together in perfect synchronicity. Um, and even if you don't like the content all that much you know, if you appreciate good musicianship, you have to appreciate that. Absolutely. I mean, and I think you captured it all there. There's the the level that these guys are operating at on this album. And every time you listen to it, you'll hear another layer of that. And it really is amazing. Like what I would love for, for this album is I would love to be able to purchase the separate tracks of like the, the drum track, the guitar track, the keyboard track and the vocal track and actually isolate them and just listen to each one of these songs with that because that's how good every single line of what these guys are doing is there's not a song where Jimmy Bain takes the song off in terms of bass there's maybe one song i feel like that has a a traditional rock bassline in it but for the most part his basslines are incredible vinny uh, amazing on every single song vivian campbell amazing on every single song and the way that Dio sings over the lead lines and that they're doing things in this band that other bands would sound like a disaster if they tried to do. Right. And, right. and it's, uh, it's amazing how it all sort of comes together. But, but this album, interestingly, when it came out was not an immediate overnight success. It took 18 months for this album to go gold in the United States. And it went gold the same time as the last in line did. Wow. So their second album was much more, fast to success than this first album however and and probably then contributed in retrospect to the success of this album yeah yep and this album went on to become their most successful album but it wasn't immediate it was you know it eventually went platinum and sold you know lots of copies and over his career dio has sold more than 47 million albums over all the projects that he's done which isn't surprising given you know his time in black sabbath and stuff like that right but, given those given those that those projects include black sabbath and rainbow you know right but to look at his career and say 47 million albums this guy has been a part of selling you know over the course of his career i mean that's that's, that's a huge yeah. footprint on the metal scene over you know, 40 years. Yeah. And, uh, and it's pretty impressive. So yeah, you know, not, as bad, we mentioned, for, not bad for a short guy with bad hair, you know, <laughs> uh, unbelievable. Right. And, uh, and so, yeah, a couple more facts before we get into the, the, the things, uh, before we get purely into the facts, I want to, I want to talk about that because that's something that Dio got a lot of stick for, you know, is that, I mean, I loved the fact on, in one way that 
he he proved that metal was not about your looks. Absolutely. You know? Like if yep. anybody did, because even Motorhead, I mean, Motorhead are a bunch of ugly fuckers, but at least they oh look dangerous. God, yeah. yeah, exactly right? right. They look like they could beat the crap out of you, so right. you're never going to bring up the fact that they're not the greatest looking guys in exactly. the world. Exactly. Whereas Dio was like four foot ten or something. Well, maybe not, but you know, yep. he was a tiny, tiny guy with bad hair and bad teeth, and he was no oil painting. And I mean, no disrespect to his memory when I say it, because I say it with love. And I love the fact that it didn't matter because he was such a fantastic vocalist. He had such an amazing yep. voice. And clearly, you can tell from this album, was such a good songwriter, you know, made such great music. And that... I'm not going to lie. There's a part of me that thinks that he might have been a warlock. And so <laughs> well, that that, there was always yeah. this sort of well, aura. Not only that, but he got, you know, he was the guy who popularized fantasy tropes yes. in heavy metal through his time in Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath were always, thanks to Geezer Butler, they were always into the sort of fantasy and sci-fi lyric stuff but dio really cranked that up like you know several notches um so when people think of uh you know knights on horseback and demons absolutely. and dragons on the covers of heavy metal albums it's mainly dio that they have to thank for that absolutely this could this album could be the soundtrack to umbral <laughs> you know what i mean like this was th this was Bless the you. guy that was the champion of the D D kids yeah, exactly. In more ways than one. And I want to read you something from what Rolling Stone said about him, because this is going to come up when we get into the lyrics of this okay, album. Cool. He said, Rolling Stone magazine eulogized Dio with these words. It wasn't just his mighty pipes that made him Ronnie James Dio. It was his moral fervor. What always stood out was Dio's raging compassion for the lost rock and roll children in his audience. Dio never pretended to be one of the kids. He sang as an adult, assuring us that we weren't alone in our suffering and someday we might even be proud of conquering it. And that, to me... That's beautiful. ...speaks to a lot of what I took away from his songs. I was a nerdy kid. I was a, a kid who always struggled with my weight in elementary school. I was a Catholic school kid in a public school neighborhood. And frequently, when those kids would get out of school earlier than me, they would give me a rough time on the way home. There was a lot of bullies in my neighborhood, and I was the nerdy D&D &D kid, and... Uh, this was one of those things that when I started listening to Dio, his lyrics really spoke to me. And I do feel like a lot of his songs were very much aimed at, um, and not that a lot of other metal songs weren't aimed at, you know, this idea of people don't understand you. But for many of them, uh, for many of those other bands, it was about screw the man, stand up for yourself. It was about power. And I think where what struck me about what Rolling Stone said about Dio is I felt like that word compassion was something that was in his songs. Like he, the way that he spoke to uh, the kids that were listening to his music was from a place of compassion, and it wasn't just you know power through it and you'll be fine. Right. You know, it was like it was from a place of trying to show them that yeah, people do struggle with this stuff, and and it was. Uh, but it gets better. It gets to, better. To, to paraphrase the recent campaign, you know, right. And you will get stronger for having suffered through this and, and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, um, so yeah, that's what always kind of struck me about him because he is a great lyricist. And, and also, although some of his stuff is way out there, um, and even within the same song, some of the stuff is a real departure from what maybe the core of the song is, there are some amazing lyrics in a lot of Dio songs and stuff that you can just revisit in, in, uh, and really be affected by those words. So, so yeah, the fantasy stuff, you're absolutely right. Huge. I mean, Murray is the name of the um <laughs> What a bizarre mascot. name for a mascot. <laughs> it was a super bizarre name. Although its real name, you ready for this? Moralsi. 
M U R R A L S E E is uh Okay. Apparently his real name is Moralsi and he is the last of the Malkovians being over a trillion years old. And the legend goes that him and Ronnie James Dio would converse and Murray would tell him stories about when the earth was young. So <laughs> so this is the lore that grew up around and then he would use these stories to fuel the mystical imagery that is Dio. And you bet and that so, Dio wrote that lore as well. You're absolutely <laughs> right. And so isn't that cool? Because I think I think that's the other thing too, is like the writer in you just sort of likes the fact that he was so into that and and the imagery that he was creating with the songs and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah they, he was definitely Dio was a band with a mascot, you know, as were uh a lot of bands, although a lot of them don't have memorable mascots, and Dio was one that did. He appeared on a lot of their albums and um and most certainly on the Holy Diver album, where he's sort of in the background as the uh, as the priest is floating in the water in chains, and it's a pretty striking image on the front cover well, of that. And and he's doing the devil horns as well. Yes, and he's doing the devil horns, which again you would see pretty much on all of their albums. So uh, so yeah, uh, another interesting fact about the album in 1989, a Japanese video game company named Irem made a game based on the song Holy Diver featuring a protagonist who resembles Ronnie James Dio. The game was never released outside of Japan. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Wow. I've okay. seen, I believe you can go on YouTube, and if you can, and I can find it, we will put a link in the show oh, notes. Oh, you have to send me to that video Holy if you Diver can find it. video game. So if we can get that here, please, maybe they can uh, do a high-res re-release on uh, Xbox One or PS4 or something like that. Um but yeah, so Ronnie James Dio, Vivian Campbell, Jimmy Bain, Vinny Apice were your uh, artists on this album. A couple quotes from interviews that they've done over the years. Uh, Dio himself was asked, "Where does your template of making a song out of you know out of two different styles—a soft buildup and a hard-hitting main body—where does that come from?" And Dio said, "I like to write and sing fragile pieces, but I don't often want to do a full-on ballad, so I introduce some pieces with ballad-like structure." These pieces are meant to put the listener in a more ethereal mood until the hammer falls, <laughs> which is so perfect for the songs that we're going to talk about on this album. It is, it is. But I'm just picturing him saying that while doing the horns at the interviewer or something, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the way. And the hammer, in many uh, in many cases on this album, the hammer is Vinnie Apice. He is the hammer. Yes, yeah. And, uh, and th- he was also asked, uh, you know, Keeping your poetry in high value and taking its imagery on both artful and conscious level, uh, I never got the meaning of the origin of the tiger in Holy Diver. When we talk about Holy Diver, actually, I'll save that for when we get to Holy Diver. Yeah, he yeah, talks yeah, about what yeah. that means. Uh, Vinny Apice, someone said, uh, "Holy Diver is pa- perhaps the best album of the '80s." Do you know it? W- did you know it was that good at the time? And he said, "When we were making Holy Diver, we just went about our business, putting some ideas down. We had a lot of fun making this album. We were all crazy." We didn't think we were making a classic. We were just making what we felt. Everything came from the heart. We had no preconceived notions of anything. I remember one of my roadies coming up to me and saying, this is going to go platinum. And he told him we would keep our fingers crossed. He said, who would have known uh, that 25 years later, the thing is still selling. You just don't know that at the time. No, you never do. But we, this is, we've talked about this before. And this goes for all manner of art, not just music. You know, It's the projects where that's the case, where everybody is just into it. And don't, you know, don't think about what you're supposed to do. Don't think about the rules or, you know, what your fans might be expecting, which of course for a debut album like this, well, you know, Dio was the only one who really had fans in that sense. Right. Um, Don't think about that. Just do what you want to do. And, you know, 
most of, I mean, you know, not obviously not everything you do can be a success, but certainly speaking from my own experience, my biggest successes have always been the projects I've done purely because I wanted to do them. And I right. haven't paid any mind to whether or not there'd be anybody out there who wanted to read them. And you hear that a lot from musicians as well. And cinema, even you hear it from filmmakers. Right. When you're trying to play to what you think will sell or what you think is going to resonate with people, then that's usually when you don't end up creating that. Yeah. Um, what else do we have here? I'm not going to get into too much of the Vivian Campbell feud. Uh, it's pretty well known that over the years, the relationship between Vivian Campbell and Ronnie James Dio really deteriorated. Um, there's a lot of sides to that story. Um, a lot of times it will be said that Vivian quit the band. Um, however, Vivian asserts that he was basically let go from the band because he was trying to negotiate for a better wage at the time. Um, he talked to Eddie Trunk a few years ago and you know, Eddie Trunk asked him about it and he said, um, I was fired in the middle of a tour for only asking what Ronnie and Wendy had promised me before, basically. And and Eddie Trunk said, well, what is that? And he says, well, we were sort of, when we met on the first night that the band formed, it was in a rehearsal studio in London and it was Ronnie and Jimmy and Vinny. And, and he said, we all hung out and played and that was the birth of the band. And Ronnie kind of explained to us that he didn't want to be a solo artist, that he wanted to have a band but he was going to call it Dio for a number of reasons, obviously name recognition, that kind of stuff. Um, he explained that by the third album, we would that all of the pay basically of the band would be equitable. That you know, in right. order to get the thing off the ground, he was sort of the the best foot put forward, and that eventually, after a few albums, they would all get to be in a better place where it would be you know sort of equal treatment for everyone. And and from Vivian's perspective, you know, when they got to that point, it didn't seem like that their end that of the bargain was upheld. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, because he had an issue with that, he says that he was basically let go from the band. That's 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 one of the things that I read about this, although I will totally say that there are many different accounts of this feud. Um, the sad thing about it is that they were still not, uh, they still had a crappy relationship at the time that Dio passed away. And of course, Vivian Campbell himself was sick for a while too and, and made it through that and came out the other side of that. So it's unfortunate that they were never able to really, um, you know, yeah. bury the hatchet around that because, and now Vivian Campbell is going out with a band that I believe um, Vinny Apice might be in and Jimmy Bain. I, I think, is it Dio Disciples? I can't remember. But in any case, um, basically, they are going out and doing the songs that they created together. Oh, the band is called Last in Line. Right. That's what it is. There is a band called Dio Disciples, and they're a tribute band to Dio. But this band, Last in Line, Vivian Campbell, Vinnie Epice, and uh, and Jimmy Bain, and a couple of other guys doing the songs that they all created together, So, which they have every right to go out and do, because they were obviously a super important part of this. But yeah, that's sure. that's the unfortunate thing about you know a career where um, almost everybody had wonderful things to say about Dio, and he's thought of you know in such a great way. That one relationship seems to have really been... Um, an unfortunate piece of that tale and had gone on for a lot of years. But, uh, but yeah, such an interesting band. And, and when you mentioned that Vinny had left and sort of followed him, he ended up being a part of whatever project that Dio was doing. And usually he would be the guy that they brought in. You know, I think it was the second time around with Black Sabbath where, um, what well, did they bring Vinny back for that? They so brought him back for that, but it was Dio. after, oh. but it was after, um, uh, Bill Ward, right? Yeah. 
it was after he something happened with him. Like it basically, like if something would happen, they would bring in Vinny, and Vinny was always like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." Well, I'll do and it. things were always happening with with Bill. Bless it, you know, Bill battled for many many years with drug and alcohol problems. Yeah. So yeah, it it was not at all. Well, for the, it's the same reason that Phil Taylor was eventually let go from Motorhead. You know, um, yep. it comes to the point where you can't drum anymore because you're too fucked up. Um, right. You know, and of all the people in the band, <laughs> the one who really, really needs to not who be has to hold up, it together, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is the drummer? So, and Bill Ward's talked about. I'm not talking out of school here at all. Bill Ward himself has said many times that he was a complete and utter, you know, fuck up, uh, and he should be dead ten times over by rights. So yeah, it's not surprising that uh, they would have to call in somebody like Vinny every and so cool often. Thing, <laughs> the cool thing about Vinny is, and you should go on YouTube and just see some of the interviews that he's done over the years. Number one, he comes across as a super nice guy, and I've only heard good things about him. Uh, he comes across as very sort of genuine, and he has a great attitude about all of the projects that he's been a part of. And he basically said, you know, I always sort of kept my eyes open. And even when I didn't agree with stuff, I would try to learn as much as I could from whatever project I was on and whoever I was working with. And he just has a great attitude about mm, that stuff. Yeah. And and he's got some cool, he said, uh, one time he was asked, name the best and worst things about being a drummer. And he said, well, the best thing is you control the band because they play to the drummer. So you're in control of the band, he said. And usually at shows, you have the best seat in the house. And uh, <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and then they also asked him, and, and I don't know if you felt this, but when I listened to this album, I thought to myself, this guy's drums sound heavier than 90% of the drums that I hear on metal albums. They just sound thunderous. Mm, I, I don't know whether I'd go that far, but I mean, they do, they, what they do sound is heavier than the sound they have. Yes, if if that makes sense, like because this is an album from the early eighties, and yep. so the the production, it's clean, it's good, clear production, but it is not what we think of nowadays when we think of heavy metal production. Uh, right. It is very much sort of classic rock style production. Absolutely, um, and Dio and produced this album, right? But consequently, the drums are not the sort of thunderous, cavernous, big snare booming drums that we now think of as metal drums. Uh, and yet he manages to make them sound heavy re regardless of what they actually, the drums individually sound like. And uh, that's the, something the he's known for. Heavy. And so uh, he was asked in an interview and he kind of laughed at it. Uh, someone suggested that he has extra thick drum heads and that was the secret of him hitting so hard. And he said, well, the secret is you have to know how to hit. And he said, I just know how to hit them. But then he said, I play with the butt end of the stick. And if oh, you watch the videos of him, he plays with the butt end of the drumsticks, which to me made immediate sense to me right, as that's to crazy. one of the things that contributes to his sound. And he always has. So when you see him doing these drum solos and everything, you can see him holding the sticks upside down. Wow. <laughs> and that's how he plays, which is crazy. Because you would think nuts, he would yeah. have less... Less uh, control, control, less finesse. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because yeah. uh, they're not balanced to be held that way. So yeah, that's nuts. And he said, so I play really hard. He said, but when you know how to hit them, you don't kill the drum heads as much. And so he he also, I've heard him talk about how he considers himself to be, you know, he plays a lot by feel, but he also is technically trained. Like he's, mm. you know, he knows what he's doing. So, um, so yeah, I just thought that was super interesting that he he plays with the back end of the sticks on the drums. So, huh. uh, 
All right, let's let's get into the album. We're already an hour in, so <laughs> okay, let's do it. Uh, let's talk about the album. We are. This album is from 1983. Yep, has nine tracks, mm-hmm. 42 minutes, mm-hmm. um, which is a good. You know, we've talked about this on past shows. That that's a fairly good. I feel sort of median time, especially again talking about you know the early 80s albums were not because this was pre CD era, so albums at the time were not. Uh, the sort of 70 minute beer moths that we now think of. Right. So I think 42 minutes is, yeah, that's a, that's a good, and you know, several of the tracks are over five minutes, but there are also a couple under four minutes. So it it kind of balances out. I think it's, it's a good length. Yes. I, and, and I personally, I don't think any song in this album overstays its welcome. And I think it's the perfect length. Um, Just in general, before we get into the tracks, to me, this is a perfect example of why I love 80s rock and metal. Like a, just an absolutely perfect shining textbook example of everything that I love about that era of music. Um, what I love about the mix of this album is nothing is buried in the mm, mix. Yes, Everything yes. is up front and center. Um, there's really only one time on the album, and when we get to that song, I'll talk about it, where I felt like something could have been pushed up a little bit more in the mix. But overall... The bass is out there. The drums are out there. Ronnie's vocals are out there, and Vivian's guitar playing is right out there. And so everybody gets equal attention. It's all right there. It's such a full sound that this is one of those albums that I would love to be in just a huge room with giant speakers and play mm-hmm. this as loud as I possibly could because it just has that full. It's not thin at all. It's just. It's just this. It's got a big sound to me. Well, it it could be thicker. I mean, listening to it sort of through modern ears, it could be a thicker sound. And I would be really, I mean, I don't even know if it would be possible, but I would be really interested to hear a sort of remix. I think they did do one. Oh, really? With like more modern mixing? I think they did do one. I'm not saying that it would necessarily be better because this is, I mean, something else that we haven't really talked about much is this is is melodic metal. This Mm -hmm. is not... It's not thrash. It's certainly not, you know, death or grind or anything. Um, you know, this is trad, but it's not It's not hair metal either. This is trad melodic metal. You know, it sounds kind of like the next evolution of Black Sabbath, as you would expect from somebody like Dio. Yep. Uh, it was re-released in 2005 by Rock Candy Records. They did a remaster, and it had additional songs on it. It had let's see, uh, nine additional tunes, a bunch of live cuts from right. different songs, but it was remixed and remastered. And so I would be interested to hear that, but I also have this kind of bias against going back and listening yeah. to re-releases because often... They're no good, yeah. As I say, no I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it would necessarily have made the album better. Sure. I'd just be interested to hear how the playing and everything, you know, would... Yep. Would fit that. Um, I will just briefly say nothing to do with metal, but there is one exception, and that is the recent Genesis remasters okay. um, that they released over the last few years of their very early albums, because the production on those early albums is dreadful. I mean, just absolutely terrible. <laughs> um, and they remixed and remastered all of them, and Tony Banks was involved, and they actually came out sounding brilliant and crystal clear, and they're wonderful. But generally, and especially with rock albums, it is a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, other general thoughts. Again, for me, this is a top 10 album, uh, Desert Island album. Vinny Apice, one of the great drummers of all time, I think, after listening to this. And and what's amazing to me about his drumming style is 
there are times where he'll speed it up, but this is a guy, th- this to me is the difference between drummers who play fast and are technically competent. That doesn't necessarily make a good drummer to me. Right, like this right. guy, what he brings to playing the drums to me is you can feel it. You can just yeah. feel it when you listen to this. You can music. feel the energy. It's yeah, unbelievable. It's, you're right. In terms of technical competence, there's not really anything here that you know any sort of decent drummer who's been playing for a few years couldn't play. There's you know this is not sort of Lombardi or um, sorry Lombardo. Yeah. <laughs> what am I thinking of? Uh, or Paul Bostaff levels, or even you know sort of Vinnie Paul, or you know we're not talking that sort of amazing top level of technical complexity. Um, and yeah, I don't think I don't even think there's any double snares on this album, are there? I think everything is all like single four four snare beats. I but, think you're right, but um, you can feel the energy in the playing. Well, and his older brother Carmine is you know a very well known known drummer as well. So Vinny, you know, grew up kind of oh, seeing his that. brother play. Uh, his brother has played with uh, Vanilla Fudge, uh, Cactus. Let's see, Rod Stewart, King Cobra, Blue Murder. Um, who else did he play with? He's played with a ton of people, and uh, he Vinny told a story about how Carmine came and gave him the first Led Zeppelin album and said, "You should listen to this guy. He's a pretty good drummer." And, and Carmine, <laughs> yeah, pretty good. <laughs> and, and and so Vinny sort of listened to him. I feel like you can hear a little bit of that influence when you're listening to him play. Um, and he talks specifically in one interview about how uh, Bonham sort of used the hi hat and he never really hit it in a traditional way. He always right. sort of added a little something extra, and I think that's all over this album. Like I, I just and you talk about how you know he sort of is able to get a bigger sound out of the drums uh, without having to actually just whack them at maximum, and that's like Bonham. Bonham was you know Bonham didn't play sort of you know a heavier sounding drum kit than anybody else, but it was the way he played it that right. made it feel and sound so heavy. Uh-huh. And that, you know, so there is definitely a parallel there. Yeah. So you want to dive into the tracks? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, Stand up and shout, of course, is the opener. <laughs> And as soon as I started playing this album, I was like, hang on, I think I do know this. Maybe I have listened to this album before. And then I realized that where I know it from is the video game SSX4. Nice. <laughs> it was one of the main... SSX4 was the one that was subtitled on tour. And it was a sort of um, Napoleon Dynamite sort of visual aesthetic. Sure. And all of the music was heavy metal. It was all like sort of rock thrash and heavy metal yep. stuff um 
And so, yeah, this song was actually on that video game and that's where I heard it. <laughs> so I many great... I love it. Oh, it's so, first of all, it could be a closer on many an album because it has the ending of Thank You and Good Night, basically, where they're, where they're kind of, you know, the symbols crashing. Just It has that great rock and roll ending where you're like, that could be the closer on an album where you'd walk away like, holy shit, that album was a burner. Mm. They start with this song. It's a burner right out of the gate. You've got a great main riff, and then you've got Vinny doing these freaking tom rolls and fills behind it that are just like insane uh and and ronnie just straight up in your face on the first on this song uh in a couple other ones he almost has like a um a little bit more of a rasp to his voice he's not singing as completely clean as he does on other songs and i kind of like that like he switches up his style a little bit and on this one he's just this was basically again this was his this is what I'm bringing to the table song. Right, you know, this yeah. was the, they're opening up their first album as a band after he is out of black Sabbath and he just kicks the door down with this straight ahead speed burner of a song. It's just, and of course the guitar solo, it sounds like Vivian Campbell is fired out of a cannon. I mean, he just starts <laughs> ripping into the solo and you're like, who the hell is this guy? You know, I can only imagine at the time where, you know, people hadn't heard. It was like whenever Ozzy would get a new guitarist. Right, and you'd right. be like, "Holy shit! Where did this guy come from? Right. He's where freaking did they amazing!" Find this guy? Exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. you thought that with Randy, you thought that with Jakey e. Lee, you thought that with freaking Zach Wild. Like, it was like that. You know, you hear this guy, and you're like, "Holy crap!" Where you're coming to this album thinking, "Well, I know Dio, and I know Vinny because he played in Black Sabbath, and Jimmy Bain was in Rainbow with I was Dio, say, so I know Jimmy these Bain guys." As well. yeah, yeah. You know, like I kind of know what I'm getting into. Where, who the hell is this kid? But you then know, suddenly just, it's like. But the unbelievable. Yep, absolutely. And so I just love that. This is just a rip the cover off song, and and it's three minutes and eighteen seconds. They get in and they get out. Not a second longer than it needs to be. And and that's even with eighteen seconds of finish. You know, that's the that's the right. crashing symbols and the and the thank you good night and all that kind of stuff. So it's really three solid core minutes of yeah. bam in your face, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. I think uh, uh, I know what we're in for. I don't really have anything to add to that because that's exactly, yeah, it is such an energetic song. Everybody sounds amazing on it. Dio sounds incredible. Like his voice on this song is just, you know, wonderful. Um, and yeah, it is a real, as we've said before about some great openers. It's a, it's an opening statement. This yep. is what you're in for. Strap in. Here we go. Yep. Um, and yeah, and it just charges forward at 100 miles an hour. And then smacks into a wall at the end. <laughs> it's amazing. It, it really is like that. It, it's a song, and and what I love about most of the songs in this album, in my opinion, is that they can stand by themselves. Like this is a song that oh, is totally, yeah, so yeah. different from the song that comes after it. And you can just take this song as as you said, it was in a video game soundtrack. So clearly, you know, it's a well, song and, that can stand and a high speed racing game video game soundtrack yep. as well. That's the thing, and it suited it. It was you know whenever this one came on. In yep. fact. It was one of those games where they tailor the songs to according to what you're doing, and I seem to recall that this was always played during races rather than yep. stunt runs because it feels like a. Sp- it's the sort of thing that makes you want to, you know, get a lead foot absolutely, and slam your foot on the accelerator. And it's 1983, so yep. this thing is just blowing the doors off right now. Yeah. Uh, so then we get into Holy Diver. <laughs> Holy 
song that I think probably has lost a little bit of luster for some people simply because it's been overplayed, maybe not so much now, but certainly during the era of heavy metal radio um, that I grew up listening to. This right, was a go-to right. song when people would say, this song, Last in Line, Rainbow in the Dark. Um, there was a few songs that you would hear over and over and over again, um, but when you go back and listen to this song and really listen to it, first of all, the keyboard and synth intro literally sounds like you are in the depths of hell like <laughs> i've always i've always thought it sounded more like a sort of you know uh, in a desolate uh you know desolate plain or desert or something well yeah but like to to me like in that in that cold sort of weird otherworldly part of hell you know what i mean like just right. this oh, okay. this okay. sort of it sort of paints a landscape before you and and the different sounds that they're getting uh, in the beginning of that one, and just like something that sounds akin to a to an owl or an animal or some, but not nothing of that. You know what I mean? Just like this yeah, whole yeah. weirdly otherworldly. This song takes you to a different place before it even starts, and then. And by the way, I was doing the horns when I sang that. <laughs> I know, right? Because <laughs> you, you have to. You have to. I love. This is one of my all time favorite songs as i've you know i've laid out my stall i'm not a huge dio fan i'm not a huge leo dio listener more to the point uh for many reasons some of them childish but nevertheless but this this song i have always loved and it has always been one of my all-time favorite rock and metal songs partly because that riff that riff man what a riff it's um, killer it's so and and the, and it is and the lyrics and the vocals are so catchy they just yep. stick they lodge in your brain i absolutely love it and then there is the insane music video that goes with it which is the <laughs> which the is very basically first, well the yeah, very first ahead. time i heard this song was with the video like i was on mtv i think um and i'd never heard it before then and i it came on and i saw it you know sort of heard it at the same time as watching the video and that's it i was i was in i was like this is one of the most batshit insane things I've ever seen. It's yes. so crazily low budget and yet endearing because it reminded me of LARPing myself, like running around a field waving a completely. rubber sword in the air. That's a completely <laughs> what it, it's like watching the Beastmaster or something yeah. like that. Like it is, it is, uh, or, or Tor or something like that. Like it, it is, uh, it's him walking around with like animal skins on and holding a sword and sort of looking around the ruins of this, you know, shoddily made place, but it's fantastic. You and know, swinging it is. the sword occasionally Absolutely. And off camera. He kills somebody, you know, it's, ah, oh. the thing that I love about, well, the riff we just talked about, which is amazing. The baseline, it literally sounds like Jimmy Bain is going to pluck the strings right off of his base. Right. And they're just yeah, going to yeah. fly off into space because every note is so heavy. And then anytime, the main line cuts out, you have Apice just killing the drums in the middle. So like the riff is custom made for fills to be inserted in Yes. In each place. So it's just constantly hitting you. And every time it turns and the verse kicks in, like it just punches you. And so it's it's just one of those songs that is like perfectly composed. 
Well, and even even on line between the lines of the verse, you get the riff, that lovely stop start bit with yep. the guitars where it kind of pulls out and then the drums bring it back in. It's uh oh, yeah, it's, it's so good. It's like we were talking about earlier, it's kind of everything syncs together perfectly on this song. Um I must also give a shout out to the kill switch engage cover version of this, which yep. is wonderful i mean it's a really really good cover in you know i've talked about my cover the- my cover version theory before and this is one of those where actually i think it sounds better i honestly i i mean apart from howard jones's voice isn't quite as good as dio's but everything else about their version i actually think sounds they took it to the next level and made right. it sound like a modern mix um but also their, the cheesy video that they made to their version. Have you seen that? It's like a comedy tribute no, to the original. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, man, you've got to... I'll put a link to that in the show. Okay, notes. good. I it definitely is, want to check that out. Seriously, it's like a light-hearted comedy tribute to the original video, complete with a sort of what could be a Dio demon, but without like being close enough to get sued. Yep. <laughs> Uh, now, of course, the lyrics in this song, a, a lot of people have talked about, you know, what the meaning of it is. He talks about the striped tiger and jumping on the tiger and all this kind of stuff. And that's where I wanted to pull an interview quote from him. Please uh, do, because I, what the fuck even is a holy diver? I love it. Like my PS3 n- uh, network name is Holy Raver, right? Yep. I have used that alias in gaming for well, many, many go. years now, I, as a tribute to this song, but I have no idea what it means. There's a couple different interpretations. So one interpretation of the song as a whole is that it's about Satan and his descent to hell, his dive, if you will. The lyrics deal specifically with Revelations 12.9, where Satan was cast to earth. The tiger is symbolic of the wild beast that comes out of the sea, as mentioned in Revelations 13.1. So that's one interpretation that it's mm. it's uh, a biblical interpre- interpretation of what the lyrics are. Now, when Dio was asked, someone said, um, bah, 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 bah. Uh, I still never got the meaning and the origin of the tiger in Holy Diver. Uh, neither Blake's nor Kipling's tiger does fit there. What's behind this image? So people have been trying to you know, figure sure, it out. Yeah. And yeah. he says, Dio says, the tiger symbolizes strength while its stripes suggest impurity. The lines, ride the tiger, you can see his stripes, but you know he's clean, means that you must take advantage of the strength you have and not judge the heart of others by what seem to be impurities. These stripes in the package it comes in. That's pretty good. <laughs> right? That's pretty so, good. <laughs> so, And now imagine if you had the ability to talk to Dio on a regular basis about oh, what his lyrics mean. You know what I mean? Because you could uh, yeah, take yeah. any song that he wrote and just be like, dude, what is this about? And then he gives an answer like that, and you're like, oh. Okay. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. Well, that's not I what I thought got, it was. But I just got educated. Exactly. You know, and and so, you know. Even the lyrics that you think sound a little bit cheesy, like he probably has his own, he's got a whole 365 page book of back lore for right, every song yeah. that he wrote and stuff like that. So so I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, Holy Diver, we could heap praise upon eternally, but it is a classic. It is something that um, he will always be remembered for, and it is a great representation of every single person in this band. Well, um, and I don't think it's a bad song to be remembered for. That's oh, the thing. No. I mean, it is a genuinely great Absolutely. rock song. You know, is it metal? Is it not? That's, you know, you can argue about that until the cows come home. But it it is a rock song, no question. And it is a great rock song. And actually, talking about his lyrics, I think this is lyrically one of the most interesting tracks on the album. Because if I have one criticism of 
this album uh, more than anything else, really, it is that some of the lyrics are kind of forgettable. I would agree with you. I'm not you. saying they're bad, yeah. but they're just not, uh, they're not that interesting. A lot of them, not all of them. There's a couple of tracks that have some very good and interesting lyrics and Holy Diver is one of them. Yeah. But that is one, like I say, it's not that they're bad, they're very good, but that's kind of the problem is that they're almost, it feels like some of them are actually a little too polished and not, you know. Yeah, I agree with you because I feel like with the next song that we're going to talk about, uh, which is Gypsy, the problem that, that this album suffers from sometimes is that it's so damn good that some songs that would be standout songs on other albums have a tough time standing out on this album. <laughs> right, and that's yeah, a yeah. problem, and, but it's a good problem to have. You know what I mean? And and that's and Gypsy, I think, is the song of the entire album that suffers the most for that. Because if you just took Gypsy which I think was a single off this album and did pretty well as its own. I'm going to look that up. Um, no, it was Rainbow in the Dark and Holy Diver. I did. Right. I thought I read that Gypsy was one of the ones that got a lot of radio play. But in any case, Gypsy is, more, is probably the most straight-ahead rock song on this album. Kind of like this bluesy sort of rocky um, song where he again uses more of a raspy, um, almost Bond Scottish, I think, in some ways, you mm. know, approach to the vocals on this song. And yeah, I think you could take the lyrics in a couple of different ways. To me, that it could certainly be a song about drugs. Uh, it could be a song about the lifestyle that he's chosen to live on the road from place to place, kind of like a nomad, you know. Um, so I think you could take a couple of different things from that. Now, I thought that this song was about him leaving Sabbath. Okay. I, I thought the lyrics were like when you got um, lines like, I was on the free, just me and me. Uh, I heard the voice saying, you've got a choice, the hammer or the nail. Uh, when I rolled the bones to see who'd owned my mind and what's within. Stuff like that to kind of, to me, made me think, is he talking about like, you know, sort of, because he was effectively fired from Sabbath. Exactly. Um, it could totally you know, be that because I think a lot it could of, the, be all I think, of these things. Exactly. I think I think this whole album is that discussion in bits right. and pieces throughout sure. the entire album. Yeah. Even in songs that are about other things, I think this comes up and, and that that certainly comes up in a different songs, but it absolutely could be about that. Um The one thing I have to say about this and I, <laughs> is once again the political incorrectness of the early eighties. Like gypsy, we don't we can't you can't say that anymore. That's you know, right. It's like, no. As soon as I saw the title, I was like, oh God, really? Really? He's going to sing, like, he's going to do sing a sort of romantic, 
romanticized version of like the Romany lifestyle. I said, like, oh, Jesus. Yep. <laughs> yes, and, he in fact did. Oh, dear. But it was the early 80s. What are you going to do, man? It was. It was <laughs> the early 80s. And as a song, it's a solid rock song. It is. You it know? actually reminds me most. You, you mentioned ACDC, and I can see that, but it actually reminded me most of Led Zeppelin. This was, I thought, the most sure, Zeppelin I could totally see that track on the album, you know? Yep. Especially his vocal. Right. And so, to me, like, th- this is a song that I don't ever skip any of the songs on this album because I, I truly do love it from start to finish. But this is the one song to me that um, feels like it struggles to hold up to the rest of the songs on the album. Um, you could potentially make the case about the next song, Caught in the Middle. And I was about to, to be yep. honest, yeah, yeah. Which I think, it, you, we talk about the mid-album dip, it's funny because songs three and four on this album, I think if there is a crack in the armor of this album, it's these two songs. It's Gypsy and Caught in the Middle. Um, but Caught in the Middle, again, on its own, it's great melody, um, it's got a sort of a tra- more traditional rock and roll feel to it. It's not a bad song at all. It's, you know, it. it this is a song that uh, Vinny and Vivian and Dio wrote um and it's a it, it's a good song to listen to like there's nothing there's nothing bad about the song and of course the lyrics you know looking inside yourself you might see someone that you don't know this is another one of the songs is, is basically talking about being lost at different points in your life and yeah. facing these sort of uh, reflective moments of where do I go from here which again could certainly be speaking about the crossroads that he was at at the time again at 41 after leaving arguably know, one of the biggest crazy. bands on the planet um, and striking out on his own, so to speak, or at least with his own name, um, you can certainly see that. So I definitely feel like this is an, it's an interesting song from all of those standpoints, and certainly a, a song that is, uh, is a solid song. Yeah, there's nothing bad about this song, but it, this is, you know, we've done this on most of the albums that we talked about. This is the song where if you had to lose one song off the album, this is the one I personally would lose. Um, it's not bad and I won't skip it. And it's, yeah, as I say, there's nothing wrong with it, but it just feels very middle of the road. Uh, feels kind of a bit foreigner or white snake. Sure. I could, you, I could agree with I mean? both of those. Yeah. And because it, it, it does it have catchy. that. You know, it's catchy and you'll sing along and you'll hum it and it's got a good melody and everything and everybody plays well, but it's just a bit, it's a bit M.O.R. And it's a bit, um, I don't want to say commercial, but this song is probably the most commercial song in the album. 
You know, just in terms of what mainstream rock radio was looking like at that particular time. Because again, when you look at Stand Up and Shout and you look at Holy Diver. Right, and they're not. (laughs) Exactly. So so that's that's to me a bit of the contrast with songs three and four here. They they are a little bit more sort of traditional rock songs. However, my personal opinion is that starting with the next song, this album goes on a home run streak that is unbroken for the rest of the album. Um, And the song five... Don't talk to strangers is the just the end of the first side, and it, oh, right was that the end of side one? I wasn't sure where the yep. uh, album flip was. Right, so you've got stand up and shout, which is amazing. You've got holy diver, all time classic. You've got gypsy and caught in the middle, which are solid rock songs. They're and then fine. You've got, yeah, they're fine. And then you finish with don't talk to strangers, which is freaking amazing. is the sweet sister mary of the album <laughs> it is but it's it, it's i'll say this and john will probably be upset at me this album this song kills sweet sister mary kills it dead it's not I, they're not even I, the same I, universe. I wouldn't i wouldn't disagree with that the beginning of this song with the acoustic intro and again this goes to what dio was saying before when we read the quote from the interview about how he liked to sing these fragile parts of the song and then drop the hammer never more a perfect example than in this song mm. Yeah, I mean, yes, I, I can see it, and I I think this song works well in terms of the dynamics. You know, the soft to loud transition works well, and the structure of it all works well. But the actual quiet bit at the start, I'm not a huge fan of. You know, just as a quiet bit by itself, I just not. I don't think it's all that great. The I lyrics, love it. the lyrics, you know, are I love when he whispers okay, cautiously but- into my ear. To begin the song. Yeah. I, I do like the line, don't write in starlight because the words may come out real. How that's, awesome that's is good. that? That's the one yeah. I quoted too. What is, what, that's a classic Ronnie James Dio right. lyric if I've <laughs> yeah. ever seen one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, musically, I didn't find it all that interesting. Once it got going, however, like after the transition and the track started rocking, uh, then I really liked it actually. You know, I, I think it's a really, really good, solid track then. Oh, absolutely. The riff is amazing. And and the way the riff is structured is it's like sucks the drums into it, which is awesome. Mm. Um, the, you know, the galloping bass line. The the only thing this was the one part in the album where I thought that the the mix was just a tiny bit off because when Adrian when I keep saying Adrian, when Vivian breaks into his solo, it feels like that should come up a little bit more in the oh, mix. Oh right, yeah. But it doesn't. Um, because it's a great solo. And then 
what's awesome about the end of that solo is you have Vinny who does this awesome, very fast drum roll, but then slows it down as he brings the whole tempo of the song back down again. Yeah. And I freaking yeah. love that. It's just like, that's just, it's one of those parts where he, I can just see him drumming in my head and it, and it just <laughs> gets me psyched to listening to it. Yeah, the, the the transitions, as I say, from slow oh, to fast, and and then as so you say, very good, are really really well done. I thought, yeah, it's like musically they're just really well handled because those can sometimes come off a bit awkward. You know, Absolutely. sometimes you can tell that the band doesn't really know how to get from here to here, and yep. so they'll just like play a single ringing note, and then the drums go, but da 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 da, and off we go. You know, which is fine, but. It's not particularly interesting, but then you get ones like this or fade to black is a, is another great example sure, actually of absolutely. a good transition that works really well. You know, you get the good ones and they're the really special ones that you're like, oh, okay, that works really well. And what I love is that he does the same thing at the end of the song that he does at the beginning, but it plays out differently when he, you know, when he's saying, don't dream of women, they'll only bring you down and he goes down and then the riff kicks in at the end of the song when he does that. The riff takes an extra beat or two to kick in, so it's right. just a little bit different than it was in the beginning. And then, and then he screams, "Run, run, run, run away!" And that sort of fades into it as you know you've got Vivian just going crazy again on the guitar, and you've got Vinny's just doing these sick drum fills, just time and time again like that. The whole way this song ends, it's just like it plays off into eternity, and and then ends on this. Um, you know, just this weird note that I think is is a killer to, way to, to end, end the first, the first side, of the side as oh, well. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, yeah. you started with stand up and show. You end with don't talk to strangers. I mean, what? So amazing. Then we get into side two. Flip the album because once again, kids, this was the early eighties, and we, you know, you had to turn the record over. <laughs> you were just your head was spinning with the drum fills that you heard at the end of the last song this song comes in with the drums and i feel like the drums on this song are the heaviest on the entire album because he comes in across the toms and then bam as the first riff kicks in and this song just sounds heavy as shit this to me this is this song just sounds so heavy to me um Simply huh. because the riff is nasty. It's just, it's just a nasty riff. Well, one of the things I find interesting about this track is that it was written by Dio and Jimmy Bain. 
Yep. So you've got the vocalist and the bassist working together to write this song, which probably explains why the drums are good on it, because obviously anything written by a bassist is probably going to have a really good rhythm that the drummer can, you know, lock on to. Yep. Um, I, I like this track, and it's a great track to start a second side. I didn't know that it started the second side. Now that I do, absolutely fits there, much like Stand Up and Shout. You know, it really fits as a sort of side opener. Um, but <laughs> but I, I disagree about it being the heaviest on the album. Um, and the one thing that I thought about this was that it's a real straight-ahead rocker. And I kind of feel like this is the song that Richie Sambora and Slash and people like that had on repeat. Okay. Do you know I can what I mean? see that. This is this is the song that those guys and I love don't get I'm not knocking those guys at all. They are great musicians. But this is the song that those kind of guys would play over and over again because this is the one that I feel feeds directly into that era later, much later than this, obviously, you know, several years later. Um but it feeds into that era of the sort of not quite into the silly glam metal phase, but the sort of rock and roll hair metal phase of bands like Bon Jovi and the more sort of straight-ahead rock of Guns N' Roses. Do you know what I mean? I could totally see that because the way that this song explodes at certain parts, it has that um, energy that I think a lot of hair metal bands tried to capture. Yeah. Just yeah. that 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 just pow, you know, and, and the way that uh, Vinny's drums accentuate when they go into the chorus here and stuff is just, or when they hit that main riff, like I do, I can totally see where those types of bands would be like, that's what we got to capture, man. We have mm. to capture that in a bottle. If we can, if we can recreate that, that's, that's right. the riff that makes everybody lose their mind. Well, and, th- and those bands did recreate it and there you go, you know, <laughs> right. And then many of them watered down versions of that. And so to me, right, what's but the awesome good about, one, but the good ones weren't, and that's what I'm saying. It's right. like I say, I don't, I'm not saying this to disparage the song. I think it's a great rocking song, but I, I kind of feel, and maybe I'm completely wrong, but listening to it sort of from the perspective of 2015, it feels like, yeah, okay. This feels like it's the, the next sort of, you know, the, the ancestor, if you like, the direct ancestor of that style of music that came basically, what, about three years later? Yeah. That'd be about right, wouldn't it? Yep. Yeah, I think 84 things were still kind of, I mean, even the first albums of a lot of those bands, um, like I think Shout at the Devil came out in 84 and uh, from Motley Crue and stuff, but I, I think it it became more glam after that. Mm. You know, it was still it was still sort of dark, you know, imagery and, and stuff like that, but you're right, about three years later, probably. Yeah. Um, anyway, just a what's <laughs> so interesting. It's you mentioned that Jimmy Bain wrote the song. Very cool, subtle twist in the baseline on this song. When you listen to the first verse, because the baseline follows the riff, mm-hmm. the main riff. Um, when you listen to the first bass, so he thumps through the first part of the riff, and then he follows when Vivian does the dun 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 dun, dun. and in the first uh, verse. He just hits like the first three of those notes Jimmy Bain does. So he goes dun, 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 and he stops. And he lets the last note just sort of reverberate. Mm-hmm. As you get into verse two and beyond, he follows that riff all the way down. Oh, okay. So he follows it through. But you like when you listen to it, I almost drove off the side of the road because when I was listening to this song for like the 50th time, I went, did he just do? And then I rewound it. And I was like, holy shit, he did it. He, that's exactly what he did. And like, 
unless you're really paying attention to that, you wouldn't even know that. But I love bass players, and I just I love that that was he just played a simpler version of the bass line in the first verse, and then played the full lead riff on the bass in the other verses. Just blew yeah. me away. Absolutely blew me away. I also love the lyrics. Never tell a secret with your eyes. It's the eyes that let you down. And as soon as he says that, everything cuts out. And then you get this awesome little fill from Vinny. And then he says, tell a little truth with many lies. It's the only way I've found. Classic, you know, deal lyrics. <laughs> Just absolutely love that. There's subtle keyboards in this song that you can hear sort of in the background. Um, and there's a few places on the album where the keyboards are not in any way in the front of the mix. (laughs) Well, there is certainly, absolutely. We'll talk about Rainbow in the Dark in a few minutes, but uh, there are certain songs where certainly the keyboards lead, but there's also other songs where you don't even notice the first couple of times that the keyboards are there, but they're accentuating the chorus or something like that. So um, I just love, love the riff of this song. So I feel like that's a great opener for side two. And then the next song is by far my favorite song on the album by oh, interesting. a country okay. mile well and the track's called invisible in the palace of the virgin lies the chalice of the soul and it's likely you might find the answer there And like uh, Don't Talk to Strangers, it starts off quiet and then, you know, and then rocks out. And I think that this has a much more interesting, quiet start to it. Do you know what I mean? I I just think this is musically, lyrically, melodically, it is all, this is a good, quiet intro to a rocking song, as opposed to, as I say, Strangers in the Dark, it's fine. But I just didn't find it very interesting. Whereas this one, I I thought was really interesting. Yep, because you have the bass leading the way, and you have Vivian playing with some kind of effect on. It's maybe like a flange type of thing where his it's got this sort of otherworldly feel to the guitar line in the in this you know beginning, and you yeah. have the you know the bass sort of uh, uh, just with one note here and one note there, sort of leading the way through it. Um, what's interesting about the song is when it first starts, you're like, oh, this is the slow song. Right. Like you, you get to that part and you're like, oh, this well, is we're the, at that part of the album where you expect yes, it. And the, that's the best part about this song. And I, this was the <laughs> note I made. My note was, you think it might be the worst song in the album. And then it becomes one of the greatest songs of all time. That was my <laughs> note on this, on this song, because first of all, the riff is insane and it's so freaking heavy when it kicks it, this is one of those songs where he talks about dropping the hammer. 
Vinny drops the hammer. Vivian drops the hammer. <laughs> Jimmy Bain drops. They all drop. Four hammers get dropped on this song. <laughs> Everybody drops the hammer on this song. Um, but I get emotional over this song, and this is a song that, um, like, I sometimes when I listen to, I get really emotional listening to it because he and his wife did a lot of work with um, charities over the years. He was very into, um, you know, just like helping other people and stuff like that. This song is about it's three different stories. So the first song, the first uh, part of the song, the first verse when it really kicks in is about. Uh, a girl who runs away, a runaway, basically. And it talks about how her life is, um, it says she had 13 years of teenage tears, never a helping hand. She had 14 more of rain before she saw the sight of land. She was a photograph just ripped in half, a smile inside a frown. And then the light, the answer right inside her coming down. And the lyrics are, I can go away, I can leave here, I can be invisible. And to me, and in some of the stuff that I've read about this song, it is a song about getting out of situations that are toxic for you. And so I think even to, so to, I didn't know any of that backstory, but that's, that absolutely comes across. So the first verse is about this, this girl who finally gets away from, you know, whatever it was that, that was, you know, sort of uh, her cross to bear in life. And she, she finally realizes I don't have to stay here. I can go. Um, I can get into a better situation. But the second verse, because this is 1983 when this comes out, the second verse is about a young man who's struggling with his sexuality. Yep. And who writes about that in 1983 on a in heavy, a heavy metal, metal, metal yeah. song? That to me, and when we talked before about Dio writing for the kids that listen to his music, like imagine a kid hearing this song at that point in their life. And and um, you know, I had someone that was very close to me who was struggling with their sexuality at a time where they were in their teens and in a family that was not at all understanding of that and seeing the effect that that had on that person and how eventually they were able to overcome it but but also being a person that they were confiding into at the time and stuff like that like this song just freaking spoke to me and um again for him to write about that and again he talks about you know this kid realizing that he didn't have to stay in that situation, he could leave, he could get away. And so, um, so that verse is amazing. And then the last verse has a lot to do with him leaving Black Sabbath and that whole situation, you know, he, he, but the way he talks about it, you know, he says, I grew up quick and I felt the kick of a life upon the stage. So I bought the book and I took a fast look at just the very last page. It was a single word that I'd heard from the two that came before. So he's referencing the two verses that you know, he's talking about before and how those other kids learned that lesson. The only way to really stay is to walk right out the door. And then he talks about himself leaving and going away and stuff like that. And there, as the song sort of goes down, um, you know, and, and really starts to come together at the end, he's, he's talking about, uh, he says, where is it? He says, um, you'll never touch me. You'll never feel me. You're never, you'll never see me again because I've just become unseen. And the way he delivers that lyric is amazing. Um, you know, he says, I'm a photograph that's been torn in half. We're all 18 and we're in between. And that another, that's another line that right. just stands out as it's all of us. Yeah. It's all of us. We're all, we've all been there. We've all been at that point in our lives where, uh, and then here he is at 41 at that point again, you yeah. know, he says, we need a helping hand. 
to the Holy Land to be invisible. And just that kind of stuff to me is just uh, what a song. And and the way that and and the that's not we haven't even talked about the music of the song. The riff is amazing, but when you get to the third verse, the way that it, Vivian is playing that riff is he's putting a little bit of stank on it. He's he's it's dirty. Like he's not it's not playing it clean anymore. He's right, throwing right. chugs in between each part of the riff and stuff like that. And so it gets looser as it goes through the song. And and they do that on a few different songs on this album. And that goes to what you were talking about before in terms of them being just completely locked, just completely clicking with one another, that they're they're just feeling it at that point. And it's well, almost and in some unafraid cases, to unafraid. do things that they, you know, traditionally you're not supposed to do. Yes. And and like within a song sometimes. Like you can it's almost like you're watching them play live and they're and the song's going really well and they're just feeling it. And so they're adding a little here and there, or they're you know they're they're putting a little spin on it, and so uh, I just love all that. And then um, and also when he when he's talking about I you know it was a single word that I heard from the two that came before. You've got Vivian who's screeching in the background with the guitar, almost answering the the lyrics that he's singing. It's just driving home everything that he's doing. I really appreciated that this was the sort of most untraditional, as you say, the most untraditional lyrics. Uh, rock lyrics, you know, the sort of most non-fantasy <laughs> um, right. lyrically song on the album. Because I, I am, you know, you know me, listeners by now I'm sure will have gathered, I'm a huge nerd. I write fantasy comics for heaven's sake. You know, I'm a massive D&D nerd. My first professional writing gigs were writing role-playing games and articles about role-playing games for magazines. So, you know, come at me. Um, but... Nevertheless, you know, from time to time, it's nice to get a song that's actually about something real. And this song is about very, very real things. As you said, you know, abused children and uh, young men struggling with their sexuality and stuff like that, and, and Dio's own personal demons and uncertainties. Um, incredibly real lyrics. Uh, and I really appreciated that at around this time on the album, especially. Yes. Um, but musically, it is also a really interesting song. Everything you said, absolutely. Uh, and it also, it's one of the few songs on this album that swings. It has, uh, in the pre-chorus, it kind of catches you out because you've got, it's you know, it's a real rocker. It's a good rocking song. And you've got the line where the guitars are rocking along. And then suddenly, for the sort of the end of the first line, as it goes into the second line, you get this scale that's, pulls back from the rhythm on the guitar uh, and it, it does swing and it's not at all what you expect. You expect it because this is the way we've been conditioned with rock music. You expect it to sort of double down and dive in on the rockiness, <laughs> yep, if I can absolutely. put it like that. But it doesn't. It sort of pulls back and you get these single notes and it swings a bit and, you know, and Dio's lyrics follow that swing and then it comes back into the rocking on the third line of the pre-chorus. And it's just... Um, I'm probably not explaining it very well, but go and listen to it and you'll hear what I mean. That's clever, it's unusual, and it elevates the song above what it would otherwise have been. You know, without that, it makes it much more interesting, sticks in the brain much more because it makes you sit up and pay attention. Yep. Um, so I really appreciated a song that sort of, where both lyrically and musically, at this point in the album, they were... 
clearly doing things. Uh, they were thinking about what they were doing. You know, they Absolutely. were thinking, what can we do here to make this interesting? And I think they really achieved it with this song. And the cool thing about, and, and it's not just on this song, but but Dio has a very non-traditional way, like his cadence changes on different songs, His the way he delivers the lyrics, the way he'll sing right through the riff and stuff like that. Like he's, he's, he's not... He doesn't have a standard fo- form of delivery. He doesn't have a standard yeah. form. And that to, what that means for everybody else in the band is they have to be that much better. Because it like, and it's the same thing with like Vinny's playing style. Like Vinny will play over the lyric. Like he'll play. He's doing things that a normal timekeeper is not doing in a song. And so in that way, uh, in many cases, Jimmy Bain is holding it together with his baseline or something like that. And Vivian is free to do what he wants to do on a song and add fills and add this and get a little loose with the rhythm and stuff like that. And so for them to all be able to sort of spread their wings on any given song and do that like that takes an immense amount of talent and musicianship and faith in one another as they're trust. playing through these songs yeah. and trust and because like it none of it is exactly by the numbers and i think that's one of the things that make this makes this album great but they're doing things that if if other bands tried this it would come off as that they're not in time with one another <laughs> they don't right, know what they're right, doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that that the singer doesn't know what he's doing, or that the drummer's not the drummer's playing over people and stuff like like it, it. It would well, and it's something that a lot of metal bands actually kind of struggle with and try to find because of the sort of because of the the feel of metal and yep. the tropes of metal and you know the way drums and guitar are played within metal. There isn't a lot of room. For swing, it's one of the reasons Pantera was such a revelation when they came along. You know, there, yep. there wasn't traditionally traditionally a lot of room for groove and swing. Um, you can watch Kirk Hammett uh, talks about this, and he's a bit drunk, but he, <laughs> I think, uh, but he talks about this on the year and a half in the life of videos. You know, when they were making and touring the yep. Black Album, um, and he talks about how he was listening to lots of jazz and blues guitarists where they weren't playing exactly on the rhythm and they were behind the rhythm and it kind of it almost feels as if the song could fall apart at any moment but then they pull it back together and you could tell that he was itching to try and find that within metallica's music and i think actually they did to an extent with the load and reload albums uh i think that was a large part of that aesthetic certainly from the guitar point of view but it is something that a lot of metal bands struggle with and dio does pull it off here yeah really i mean just an amazing song and again it's at the seven spot on this album so you could see a lot of people who maybe don't even get to that song on the album you know what i mean and that's why it's good for us to kind of go through this entire album because there's some real gems on the i mean the backside of this album is start to finish incredible because you you get through invisible and then oh okay well here's one of the most iconic songs that dio is also known for rainbow in the dark
at the number eight spot. And okay, I've got to ask about that because uh, I had never heard this song before. What? Are you serious? I, I'm serious. Holy never, crap, dude. That I've is, never heard it before. This is maybe played more than Holy Diver over here. Y- you have very, very different radio in the States to what we Oh, my God. <laughs> Rainbow in the Dark here, still apparently. to this day you'll hear that song on the radio. Like that, th- This song, I think, is considered more radio-friendly than Holy Diver and is played more often than Holy Diver over here in the States. When I was standing in line for immigration at Portland Airport earlier in the year, uh, they were playing Genesis over the PA. I mean, that wow. just does not happen over here, you know? <laughs> On the so, mainstream rock chart in 1983, the single, this was the second single off the album, it reached number 14. And it was 46 on the UK singles chart, but but it was a single off of this uh, album. Right. Ah, uh, well, that explains it. Anything outside the top 40 in the UK, you ain't going to hear it unless mm-hmm. you listen to a specialist show. Yeah. It was a it was a huge song off this album, and and very much over here a song that is listed. If you were going to play ten songs from Dio, this would be one of them. Right. I mean, it's sure. a really good song. Don't you? you know, I having now heard it, I think it's great. Um, but yeah, I sort of was reading. Every, this is the other single, and it's one of the songs Dio is best known for. And I'm listening to it, going, I've never heard this before. <laughs> that's amazing, and that's interesting though, and that's one of the cool things about us being in different markets is that right yeah it is totally a different experience you know like like we talked about saxon before you know what i mean and yeah, like yeah. but yeah i mean you, certainly the keyboards are front and center on this <laughs> that synth in the chorus man oh I mean, man cuz the guitar sounds so good and it's so on, nasty on, it's the, on the this screeching track, is nasty on this right, one like but, but just the overall guitar sound i think this on this track sounds better than any other track on the album uh-huh. it's uh, like on some of the tracks on here, again, we talked about the production, you know, especially on the sort of chug heavy songs, it can sound a bit light. It can sound, you know, because they didn't have massive backline of PV amps or whatever, or black sure. star behind them, you know, to give them that crunch. Um, but this track, there's something about the way they play it, or maybe they made it double tracked. I'm not sure. But on this track, the guitars sound great. Absolutely just good and heavy and yep. rocking guitar sounds. And then, yes, yeah, suddenly you get that. Yep. Synth in the chorus. It's oh, crazy. Christ, somebody stop him. <laughs> I know, right? Because it is, it's just turned up to 11. You know, it oh, is. Man. Uh, yeah, it's really loud as well. Yeah. Yep. Uh, oh. And then, the, of course, the lyrics, when I see lightning, you know, it always brings me down because it's free. And I see that it's me who's lost and never found, you know, just a, yeah, another song yeah. about um, being lost, trying to find yourself, figuring out your place in life, that kind of stuff. And and again, which is the theme that runs through yeah, yeah. this entire album, and and with good reason. This was the point that he was at in his life. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just one of those songs that it, this another song as it ends. There's just some great drum fills and stuff like that. And yeah. of course, the the keyboard line goes into infinity. You know, the yeah. somewhere the song is still playing and it's still, yeah. it, it's not Keyboard over yet. Keyboard player is still there chugging Which away. I think Vinny is more than happy to just keep, <laughs> just putting those fills in and, and he'll just keep going for the, for eternity. And just a little bit of trivia as well. I'll tell you, one of the reasons that I know, absolutely know 100% for sure that I have never heard this song before is because when I did listen to it, I suddenly realized that I was singing along with a different song. The verse chord progression is almost exactly the same as uh, a Sisters of Mercy song, When You Don't See Me. 
From the Vision Thing album. And that's all the guitar parts on that album were written by Andreas Brun, who was a young German rock guitarist that Eldritch recruited for that album. Nice. So I'm I mean, he was young, you know, so but I am pretty sure he probably, being married he's German, he probably grew up listening to stuff like Dio. <laughs> so I suspect there may have been a bit of unconscious influence going on there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's we again, there's not much we could say about Rainbow in the Dark that hasn't been said already. Right, except that I hadn't heard it, but I will say I like it. I genuinely, I can, I can see why it was a, a hit single, absolutely, sure. because it's a really, really good song. And again, for and what is great about this album is that the variety of it, right? So here you get yes. the song in yes. Rainbow in the Dark that's so different from every other song that you've heard so far. And then they fool you again on number nine because yep. you start Shame on the Night. thinking oh this is a slow song that they're ending on oh they've dialed it down a little bit here and then it kicks ass the, what i love about this song shame on the night is that you have these sort of harmonics going on in the background as you hear the you know the the sort of basic bass line playing and then just a wicked pick slide into the main riff and he, and he s- delivers the lyrics just so like in such a nasty way. I just absolutely love it. And this is another song where as you get to like the third verse, uh, Vivian is playing the main riff, but adding the chugs in between and it gets a little looser and it gets a little dirtier. And I just love that. So this song gets heavier progressively as it goes on. And there's a part towards the end of the song where it changes completely into the heaviest rift of all time. A doom metal song. And like to me, like total Black Sabbath. And oh, more than more than Sabbath. I mean, you know, I my love for Sabbath is deep, but that riff at the end. Oh. I mean, that, you know, the, no prizes for guessing that this is my 
apart from Holy Diver, which doesn't really count, you know, this is my favorite track on the oh, album. Oh, I love that you love this you song, know. because it's, I love this song. Uh, well, it's it's like, you know, who wouldn't guess that this would be my favorite track, you know? The slow tempo, the verse, as you said, with like where you've just got the drums and the bass plodding and get the guitar hitting these shrieking harmonics. Yep. You've got the chord slide at the end of, you know, what passes for a chorus, which actually reminds me of Outlaw Torn on uh, the Load album. Oh, wow. Okay. You got that breakdown in the middle with the quiet guitar parts, uh, which, you know, before it builds back up again. And I kind of feel like I said, if, if Richie, Sambora and Slash like overdosed on Straight Through the Heart, this is the track that Andrew from My Dying Bride probably yes. had on repeat, you know? And then that big progression at the end, you say oh. everything changes for the coda. And that is a proper doom metal chord progression. I mean, and what a, the, a way to end the album. It yep. just basically oh, the whole and, album just goes to hell. And at the same time, you've got like a sort of mock choir yes. voice come, like, starts uh, you to just come in these as well. Hooded, like monks. Yes. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. dude. And like, then of a course, modern band, a, a 2015 doom metal band would be proud of absolutely. the final 90 seconds of this song. Honestly, just so good. And then you've got Vinny going around the entire kit, and you can hear yeah, it in the twice. mix. <laughs> you can hear him coming around the entire kit on those toms. And and I've seen some of his drum kits, and there's ones where he has like the mounted toms like up high and everything like that. And yeah. you can just feel it. And he's going all the way around. The chorus in the background, all I kept thinking to myself is, I don't know what the night did to this guy, but fuck <laughs> the night. Shame on it. You know, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like whatever it did. The night it's, deserves to pay because, like, it, it, the, like I, I laugh when I listen to this song because you're just like, God, this mother, this guy hates the night. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Just, uh, it's it, awesome. It is notable also that these last two songs, "Rainbow in the Dark" and "Shame on the Night," were written by the whole band, mm-hmm. um, which you know says something. Although the only other track on the album with those same credits, where it was the whole band, is "Caught in the Middle," which sounds completely different to. You know, like nowhere near as heavy as either of these songs. So very strange. Um, But yeah, I I absolutely love this song. This is, as I say, Holy Diver doesn't really count because that's just such an embedded classic. That's the Enter Sandman of this album. You can't, you know, it doesn't count. It may as well be its own thing. Both of our favorite songs are on the back of this album. Isn't it just? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, this is... usually see, right? Because usually albums are front-loaded. Right, yeah. uh, and especially today, you know, in, in the way that music is, but man. But I tell you, if I was still in bands, if I was like in a doom band right now, I would cover this. Oh, hell yes. You know what I mean? This yeah. is the song I'd go, oh, we're going to cover this. Yeah. And yeah. your guitarist would want to cover it, you know, just because of the freaking pick slides, like just the, just the, cause they <laughs> yeah. go all the way down the neck. Like the, these freaking pick slides all 24 are like frets. <laughs> all the way down and then into a brutally heavy, heavy riff. Like this yeah. is, um, do you what know? A, I did, what a finisher! It's just, it's just occurred to me that I didn't uh, pay attention to whether, he, in fact, this might have been downtuned. Even I don't think it was, but now that we're saying all this, I'm wondering if they might have downtuned, you know, drop tuned or something for this track. I'll let you know the fiftieth time I listened to it this week after we <laughs> record the show because I seriously have not been able to stop listening to it. Like all I kept thinking was that 
I had listened to it like three or four times before I brought it up as, as one to do on the show. But then when I locked in that this was the one that we were going to do, I've listened to it nonstop and I, it just doesn't get old to me. There's so right, many right. wonderful pieces to this album and everybody is so much at the top of their game on this album. Like it's, it's just a joy to listen to. It's like one of those textbook albums where you're like, okay, if you're going to be in a metal band, <laughs> like you need to know this album. You need yeah. to listen to this album because there are lessons for you to learn here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, you, this hasn't sort of made me a rabid fan, and I'm not going to run out and buy all of Dio's other stuff. But I am glad that you sort of forced me effectively to listen to it because, yeah, actually, I you know I now feel slightly ashamed that I hadn't listened to this album before because it is a really good album you know it is i can understand why it is seen as a classic holy diver aside you know just the, re- sure. the whole album as a whole i can see why this is considered to be a classic yeah and there's other great dio albums like certainly last in line is a good album uh, i really like the last one they did which was master of the moon although it doesn't have all the same guys on it obviously but this lineup does the next album too um and that's pretty good but i i felt like it was diminishing returns after that because there are songs that sound somewhat similar to the songs on here so with his other albums you get three or four amazing songs but the ones that aren't the amazing songs don't hold up as well as the songs on this album do right Where, so this whereas is, this you get like you know yep. seven amazing songs two songs that are still pretty fucking yep. good yep absolutely and and that's uh that's a pretty great package now i did well, i was lucky enough to see Dio one time in concert and it was in 2004 so I saw him late uh in his career and he was probably about 61 years old because I think he died when he was 67 in 2010 um I saw him at the Webster Theater which is one of the small venues that I really like and I saw them with the John Bush led Anthrax Anthrax opened for them okay um they played four songs off of this album they played Stand Up and Shout they played Don't Talk to Strangers, they played Holy Diver, and they played Rainbow in the Dark as part of the encore, which is not surprising. Um, amazing. At 61 years old, this guy sounded as good as he sounded on the album that you just listened to. Oh, his like voice he, was in good condition. He was famous for keeping his voice in great condition and for delivering solid performances until you know the day that he passed away. So, um, But they, they played... Um, some rainbow songs they played man on the silver mountain they played long live rock and roll they played gates of babylon from black sabbath they played uh the sign of the southern cross they played uh heaven and hell obviously and they played neon knights from black sabbath and then he mixed in a lot of other ones rock and roll children um some stuff off the new one uh which was at the time was master of the moon one more for the road he played um so a great mix of stuff from all the different eras of the bands that he had been in in addition to you know um some of the newer songs so a great mix and a, and a great set and i was so happy to have actually seen him because man he still was fantastic in concert and and uh definitely one of my favorite metal artists and rock artists of all time and, and this album is just a joy to listen to fantastic um right i think that just about wraps it up yeah what a great what a great album Yes. Uh, some real-time follow-up. While we have been recording, uh, The Defiled just retweeted us for did the they really? we did about their album. Yeah, so if you're listening, thanks, guys. That was That's very awesome. nice of you. Because <laughs> um, uh, by the time this one goes out, you know, obviously this, we're recording now and this won't be published for two or three weeks. So, uh, yes, and, and uh, we should mention as a result. Thank you. 
thanks again to everybody that has been showing love to the show and uh you know tweeting us out and recommending us to their friends and stuff like that like we're this show is a joy for us to do but it, the conversations that we've had and even seeing some of the bands you know appreciate the discussions that we're having has been totally awesome sure uh and actually before we get on to your homework uh let's just quickly give shouts out to um well not shout out but give a request that uh we have a patreon we are completely listener supported we don't have ads as you'll have noticed we don't have run sponsorships we're not on a podcast network we are completely funded by listeners so please if you enjoy the show and you can afford to give us a dollar an episode or even more go to patreon.com slash thrash it out uh watch the highly amusing video there and that will explain everything um we have a Facebook page now, a Facebook group, I should say, at facebook.com slash groups slash Thrash It Out. Uh, the p- website, of course, is thrashitoutpodcast.com, where you can always find older episodes. And if you are of a mind to, please do uh, f- take 30 seconds to rate and or review us on iTunes, because that is the best way to spread the word about the show to people who are, you know, just looking around for podcasts to listen to. We do show up in iTunes if you search for thrash metal, which is good. Um, we ser- we obviously, you know, uh, show up if you search for the title, but people right. who are just searching around for thrash metal podcasts, we will show up, actually. And if those people then see that the podcast has a good rating and some good reviews, frankly, they're more likely to become listeners. So you can help us get new listeners and spread the word just by giving us, all you got to do is click the five stars on iTunes and that will really help. Yeah, that would be greatly appreciated. All right. And now, your homework, should you choose to accept it. We are going to go. Okay, so we've done some classics. We've done some new stuff. We've done some very new stuff. uh, And then, you know, we've done some slightly older stuff. And we've covered a pretty good gamut so far. But one thing we haven't done yet, actually, is an album from the mid, early to mid 2000s. We haven't covered that period at all. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. We are going to cover next week an album called The Silent Force. The Silent Force? Yes, Silent Force by the Dutch symphonic metal band Within Temptation. All right. Yeah, the Silent Force is, I think, their third or fourth album. It's from 2004, I think. So it's, you know, by now it's 10 plus years old. Uh, and they are still going, they're still making music, but I feel The Silent Force is a good album to talk about, partly because it has a couple of what are considered their classic tracks on it, partly because it is a sort of a good, uh, an easy album to get into, and it's fairly representative of their sound and of that whole movement, the symphonic metal movement that became a thing in the early 2000s, which we haven't really covered yet on the show. So I thought that would be a good, you know, a good way to get into it. Sounds like a perfect fit. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. And uh, we'll see you then. All right. Great. You've been listening to Anthony Johnston and Brian Latendry thrash it out. If this is your kind of thing, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes, and support us at patreon.com slash thrashitout. With your help, we can stay completely independent and keep thrashing. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com. Thank you, and good night.